Now, if you have a Bible with you and want to grab that, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning. For those of you online, 1 Samuel chapter 18, as we kick off a new teaching series for four weeks here at Calvary. And we titled this teaching series, Cautionary Tales. Now, now, Cautionary Tale is a story you tell, usually a story you tell your children, to teach them what not to do in life. Because one of the things we know is that you can tell someone or teach someone a principle, and they will likely forget the principle. But if you tell them a story and attachment to the principle, they will likely remember both the story and the principle. It's like this growing up, I, uh, my dad worked at Bank of America and was in a leadership role there, and he told the story of one day when they had a meeting, and they were discussing a big, important decision they were making, and not everyone agreed, and my dad ultimately kind of put his foot down and made the decision as the leader in the room. And then people left the meeting, and some people were a little disgruntled, including one woman who was really upset at my dad, not only for the decision he made, but how she viewed him making that decision and was very angry with my father. She goes back to her desk and she sits down at her computer and she pounds out an angry email criticizing my dad and saying words about him that I cannot say from this church stage. Now you might be wondering, Brian, how do you know the story about this email? Well, this is how it becomes a cautionary tale. She was so angry, so upset, so focused on my father that in her focusing on my father, she ended up putting his name in the to line of the email and firing off the nasty email about my dad. And that was the cautionary tale told to me. Always think about who you are sending emails to, particularly if they are not entirely positive. And so I've always, to this day, as I go into the two line, I'm always making sure I know exactly who I'm sending that email to. It's a cautionary tale. Cautionary tales are really wisdom tales. And that's what we're going to be seeing here over the next few weeks at Calvary. They are wisdom stories, wisdom stories that we learn from as we go forward and follow Jesus. It's it's the distinction that's important for us between wisdom and knowledge. See, knowledge, knowledge is the understanding or the knowledge or knowledge is knowing that billions of people have lived before you. And that's easy. Anyone can know that billions of people have been alive before you. But wisdom, wisdom is learning from their mistakes so that you don't have to make them too. That's the distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is simply knowing something is true. Wisdom is the capacity to learn from mistakes so that you don't have to make those same mistakes too. And that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks here at Calvary. We're going to look at four individuals in the Bible. And here's one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible is not filled with perfect people who always follow God perfectly and do everything right. In fact, quite the opposite. The Bible is filled with godly men and women who make catastrophic mistakes at times. And that's what we're going to look at. This week we'll look at King Saul, and then next week we'll look at David, and the week after that we will look at Solomon, and the week after that we'll look at Rehoboam. And over the course of these four weeks, we will see the mistakes these individuals made as they followed after God and the ways we can learn from their stories. And here's what I want us to see clearly when it comes to the story of King Saul this morning. We will look at the story of King Saul, and here's what we'll see, that the story of King Saul shows us that unchecked jealousy will unravel your life. The story of King Saul shows us that unchecked jealousy will unravel your life. Now this morning as we talk about that, I wanna try to define jealousy. And I'll define jealousy in this way. That jealousy is the painful observation or the painful awareness that someone else has something that you want. That's what we'll be talking about when we talk about jealousy this morning. It's this painful internal awareness that somebody else has something or has someone that I want. 
Now, here's what I've learned when it comes to jealousy. Jealousy is one of these issues we do not like to talk about. We do not like to talk about jealousy. When I've been in pastoral counseling sessions or in Bible studies or small groups, where we talk about pride and we talk about anger and we talk about lust, we talk about anxiety, we talk about all these subjects. But jealousy? Jealousy doesn't tend to come up a whole lot. Jealousy is not something we like to talk about. And I've learned there's at least two reasons why. The first is because we don't think it's an issue for us. And so we think jealousy is an issue for teenagers or for younger people or for some other kind of people. We just don't think it's an issue for us. But one of the things I've learned is that if the scriptures call something an issue for human beings, we would be very foolish not to think it's actually an issue for us. Jealousy is a through line we see taught about all throughout the scriptures. And so we should be deeply aware of where it has become an issue for us. Like I was talking to this guy once and I taught on jealousy and he comes up after, he goes, that was a great sermon, but he goes, I don't struggle with jealousy at all. I said, at all? He goes, no, not even a little bit. I said, so even like on that trip you took recently where you went on the plane and they never let you board from the back, right? They always make you board from the front. And you walked through business class and you looked at where they got to sit and you went to the back. He goes, oh, that was the world. You got me. (laughs) I said, that's exactly it. Like sometimes jealousy is this clear thing where we're jealous of one individual in our life. But like most other things in life, sometimes jealousy is just that painful awareness in moments of life that kind of seems to flare up out of nowhere and we need to deal with it as it's presented to us. So for us, the issue is we don't think jealousy is an issue, but I think if we're all honest with ourselves in our lives, we'll know that jealousy is an issue from time to time. But we don't like to talk about it the first because we don't think it's an issue, but the second is even worse. The second is because we feel petty when it is an issue for us, right? Well, like when you're jealous of someone, don't you feel kind of small and petty? There's all these other sorts of vices in life where you feel like you can explain yourself. If you're angry, you don't feel small and petty, you feel justified. If you're anxious and afraid about the future, you don't feel small and petty, you feel reasonable. But when you feel jealous, There's like no explaining that. There's no justifying it. You just feel kind of gross on the inside. You know you shouldn't be, but you feel that way anyway. So for us, we do not like to talk about jealousy. And yet the story of King Saul is the warning. It is the cautionary tale that unchecked jealousy will unravel your life. And so we must talk about it. It is something we have to discuss. It's something we have to think about and talk about with our spouse and our family and our church context. And if unchecked jealousy unravels our life, then certainly the first step is this, that it is unacknowledged jealousy. Unchecked jealousy begins with unacknowledged jealousy. The unacknowledged jealousy where we will not actually identify what's going on in our own hearts and in our own minds. This is the story we're going to see here with King Saul. And so before we even jump in, it's important that you have that jealousy right on the dashboard, right in front of your eyes this morning. So here's the question I simply want to ask before we get to the story. What kind of people are you jealous of? What kind of people are you jealous of? See, because here's the odd thing about jealousy. We're all jealous of different things. It's not that we all want the exact same thing. All of us kind of have jealousy shooting off in different directions. Like some people in this world, maybe even some of you, are car people, right? You love cars, and you buy cars and nice cars, or you fix up old cars, and you see cars, and you want those cars, and you're excited about cars, and that's your thing. And so you get jealous about other people's cars. And I want you to know I'm not a car guy. I've never been excited about cars. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. Like the first 10 years of driving a car, I drove a Honda Civic, and not like a cool, souped-up Honda Civic, like basic Honda Civic. 
And I was happy. It was fine. I've never been a car guy in my entire life. And so there's people who can be jealous about cars, but I'm not. But then I'll share something I get jealous of that almost no one in here gets jealous of. Do you know that preachers get jealous of other preachers? Do, do you know we do that? We like sit there and we're listening to someone else preach. We're like, ah, oh, he is so good. I hate him, right? Like you just sit there. You're like, God has gifted him so clearly and not me in that way. And there's jealousy. And you go, Brian, it shouldn't matter. Like you should just celebrate that. And I fully agree. It's just that jealousy is never rational, right? It's always this kind of like, where did that come from? Why am I like this? Like I do the same thing when I see people. So I try to eat healthy. I try to work out. I try to stay fit. But then I see certain people who put in zero effort, but they are like 10 out of 10. Don't you just hate that? And you look at that and you're like, oh. And then again, you could come to me after the service and be like, Brian, your value is not based on your body. And I'd say, I agree. I'm still jealous. You know, like it just still is there. And so here's what we have to identify. What is it that makes you jealous? Maybe it's physique, or maybe it's how someone looks. Maybe it's someone else's income, someone else's car, your neighbor's house. Maybe it's someone's marriage. Maybe it's someone's relationship with their kids. Maybe you look at someone else's family and go, that family just looks perfect, and I wish my family was like that family. Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe it's someone who has a position that you wish you had. Maybe it's someone who has a nicer office or a bigger responsibility, someone who's famous, someone who's brilliant, someone who's well-known. Maybe you're jealous of someone who succeeded in ways you always hoped you would succeed. The question this morning is not to think generally about jealousy, but for each of us to answer the question, who am I specifically jealous of? Because that kind of self-awareness is the self-awareness King Saul never had. And I want to show you that in the story this morning. It begins in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 5. For those of you who have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. For those of you who don't, it says, it begins this way. It says, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful. So I want to stop there and frame up the story because many of you grew up in church and know the story, but some of you didn't, or you're not familiar with this part of the Bible. So here's the story of the kings of ancient Israel. God saves his people, Israel, who were enslaved in Egypt, and he brings them out. That's the story of the Exodus. He leads them into the promised land and begins to set up his nation of Israel, and he's telling them how to walk and how to live and how to be different than all the nations around them. And one of the ways God wants them to be different is that he tells them that you will be led not by a king. You're not going to have a king. And the people of God and all of their infinite wisdom go, God, that's a really nice idea, but we would in fact like a king. And God says, no, you don't want a king. And the people are like, we know what you think, God, but we're smarter than you. We would like a king. And they go back and forth and back and forth. It's this whole argument. It's fascinating. You can read it. And eventually, here's what's wild about God. God says, all right, you want a king? you get one, and you get everything that comes along with a king. He says, you don't want a king, but you think you do, so I'm going to give you one to let you experience what happens when you trust your desires and not my word. And so God decides to give them a king, and the whole history of Israel from that point is a total disaster. The kings do not work out well for them, but the story we're reading this morning is the story of the first king of Israel, King Saul. So, so King Saul gets put in place as the first king. And you might think to yourself, how did Saul get qualified to become the first king of Israel? Was it because he was like such a great organizational leader? Had he been leading in government before? Maybe he had taken some leadership courses or le read some leadership books by John Maxwell. Like what had he done to qualify himself as a leader? And the answer is actually none of those things. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, it simply says this. It says that Saul... As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. 
That's his qualifications. He's the most handsome guy and he's the tallest. That's it. They're like, he's good looking, he's tall, he's the king. That's how it goes for Israel. And so you got Saul, he's handsome, he's good looking, he's tall, he's now the king. He's in charge, he's got money, he's got power, he's got wealth, he's got fame, he's got everything you could ever want. But then someone else comes onto the scene. And this individual is named David. Now even people didn't grow up in church know David. David, the shepherd boy, David who killed Goliath. David, who's this military hero, but also this like artist who's writing songs. Also this guy who's like tending sheep. He's like this renaissance man. Everything he touches just turns to gold. And the story, the story we will look at today is the story of the jealousy that King Saul has for David. David, who has been anointed the next king. David, who is rising up. David, who's growing in popularity. And we will see this morning the story of Saul's jealousy and how it unravels his life. Let me show you in verse five. Again, it says, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So what's happening is Saul is king and he's sending David out on these military adventures. And David comes back successful every time and everyone's starting to love David because he's successful in his military adventures. He comes back and he's successful and Saul recognizes this so it says that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Now here's the question asked to yourself this morning. Who was able to give someone a high rank in the army? And the answer to that question is only someone who already has a higher rank, the highest rank. He's the king. But like in other words, what we need to get our head around this morning is that this is not the story of someone who has nothing, who's jealous of someone who seems to be getting everything. That's a different kind of story. The story this morning is the story of Saul, who already has everything, who already has the strength and the power and the wealth and all the fame. He already has everything, and yet he becomes jealous of David, the very one who he is raising up in the army. See, this is touching on what I call the great lie of jealousy. It's the great lie of jealousy that Saul never unwound from his own heart. And it's the great lie of jealousy that each of us need to unwind if we ever want to get past the jealousy, the envy, this desire that sits inside of all of us. The great lie of jealousy is simply something like this. It says that once I get what they have, I will not be jealous anymore. Once I get what they have, then I won't be jealous anymore. See, the great lie of jealousy suggests that the actual issue at stake when I am jealous is that I don't have something, and once I get it, I won't be jealous anymore. But the story of Saul disproves that thesis. The story of Saul is the story, not of someone who has nothing, but of someone who has everything. They've got everything they have ever wanted, and yet they are still jealous of what someone else has. See, here's what Saul never learned, but I hope all of us can learn and internalize this morning, that you can get everything you ever wanted and still be jealous. You can live every dream you ever had, every life you've ever, everything you've ever wanted and still be jealous. It's like this, so when I was in high school, God began to draw my heart into ministry and I began to sense the call that God was calling to be a full-time pastor to serve in a church. And sure enough, as life progressed, here I am, I'm living out the dream that God has called me into. I'm pastoring. I'm doing this full time. I love my job. I love my life. I love what I get to do. I married my wife, Danny, 10 years ago. And if you had asked her when she was in high school what her dream job was, she would have told you in an instant it was to be a stay-at-home mom. 
She wanted to raise babies. She wanted to raise up the next generation, and that's exactly what she's getting to do. She's living that dream. She's home with our babies. She loves them, and they love her. And so in every way, the story of our marriage right now is two people who are living out what they dreamed of doing. And yet, here's what anyone who's married knows. Jealousy still rears its ugly head. Uh, like my wife is home with the babies and she looks at me and she goes, Ugh, he gets to talk to adults all day long. He gets to eat his lunch without tiny humans crawling all over him asking for more ketchup. He gets to go to the bathroom anytime he wants without worrying that someone will die, right? That's what, so she's sitting there living the dream and, and yet she's jealous and then the same thing happens in my heart, Right? Like, I'm here, and I'm just, like, living this dream that God has called me into. I feel so good about this. But then I look at her and go, well, you don't feel the pressure of having to stand up in front of these people and say something. You, you don't have to deal with the situation I'm dealing with and all its complexity. You don't have to deal with that nasty email that I got and now I'm just sitting with here. Like you, so, so here's what happens. Like, we're both living exactly what we thought we wanted, and jealousy still makes its way in. And here's what we need to know, that you can get everything you have ever wanted you can live every dream, you can have everything you ever looked out and desired and still experience jealousy. See, King Saul never understood this. King Saul gets everything he ever wanted and yet he thinks if he just gets a little bit more, that will finally make him happy. And that is not what we see in this story. It goes on this way in verse six. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul and sing with singing and dancing and joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, and here's the song they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, now I have no idea how the tune of that song, I'm tempted to have Josh Green come out and like riff a little here and like try to like come up with some tune for Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul's gonna hear this. Because it's not just like a song they're singing. Did you notice the scene? There's like people dancing in the street, women coming from every town, shouting out how amazing this is. And they're shouting out basically that Saul is good, but David is better. Saul is good, but David is great. And this song is going to begin to unravel Saul. Remember, it's not, he's not been replaced. Everyone still knows he's king. They're celebrating that Saul sent him out. They're celebrating what he's done. And yet this is going to begin to unravel Saul because Saul begins to internalize this. And the lesson he never learned that, again, I hope all of us can learn this morning is simply this, that if you play the comparison game, you will always lose. If you play the game of comparing your life, your wealth, your family, your job, your career, your accomplishments, anything you treasure and value, if you play the game of comparing that to anyone else, it doesn't matter how long you play the game for, you will always lose. Because there's always someone who's done more, accomplished more, gained more. There's always someone whose kitchen is a little bit nicer. Always someone whose car is a little bit better. Always someone who's reached a little more people or done a little better in business or done a little better with their family. There's always someone who's done better. And if you doubt me, just pick any social media app, open it today, and you'll know my point is proved. This is what we see. 
We compare ourselves to others and it destroys us. We always lose. It's like anyone who's a parent knows how this goes. So like my one-year-old just started walking a couple months ago and she's walking and it's awesome and we're celebrating that she's walking and we're so happy about her walking and then we go on to social media and we see another person post about their one-year-old and their one-year-old is not only walking, she's in gymnastics and doing backflips on a bicycle. (laughs) You go, come on, right? Because when we play the comparison game, we always lose. And Saul never understands this. He's comparing himself to David. And he's comparing what people are saying about him and what people are saying about David. He's slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And it's going to unravel. This comparison game is going to unravel Saul's life. It says in verse 8, it says, Saul was very angry. This This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now, in the paragraph we just read, uh, we have one of those Bible verses that's been debated and discussed for centuries and millennia. And that would be verse 10 here, where it says that the next day an evil spirit from God came uh, came forcefully on Saul. And so the question has always been, okay, does God send evil spirits? Because that doesn't seem like God. And so this has been this really contentious, interesting issue, and we can't pick it all apart this morning. But I think what's important for us to see is this, that the evil spirits... We can say the evil one, the enemy, Satan, the devil, always wanted to get at Saul. He was the king of God's people. Of course he was a target for the enemy. And what it says to us in the scriptures, we read the story of Saul, is that the Holy Spirit departs. God's presence has left Saul, which leaves him vulnerable. So I read it when he says the the evil spirit came from God. It only comes from God in as much as God has removed his protection, removed his Holy Spirit. Now, I always want to assure believers today that the New Testament tells us that we are sealed, that there is a permanent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. So we're not going to be in the exact same shoes as Saul. And yet I believe the principle here is clear, that if we choose to go down a certain road, God will let us live with the consequences of those actions. In certain moments, he will spare us, but in certain moments, he will not spare us even from our own actions. And you can actually see the actions here in verse 9. It says, from that time on, it says, Saul kept a close eye, not on his own soul, not on his relationship with God. What does it say? It says that Saul kept a close eye on David. Saul feels jealous. He is jealous of what's going on in David's life. And rather than paying attention to his own soul, rather than fixing his eyes on God and asking, what would you have for me? Saul's attention is on David. Saul has identified the problem, and the problem is not Saul. The problem is David. Andy Stanley says it this way in his book, Enemies of the Heart. He says, we assume our problem was with the person who possesses what we lack. This is what we do when we're jealous. We assume that the problem was with the person who has what we don't have. So there's someone else at your work who's been promoted or has a nicer office or a bigger job or a better title, and we look at them and we resent them. There's someone in your neighborhood who's done a nice job with their house, and it seems like they're doing really well, and their home or their car or how they seem to be living, the trips they go on just seem to be wonderful, and we're filled with bitterness. We see people in our life 
who look uh, in shape or fit or they look healthy and they look like they're doing well and we've been trying hard, but they're not trying it hard at all. We know it and we're just annoyed by them, right? There's this thing that happens where we look at the other person and we think the problem is that person. The problem is what they have. The problem is what's going on inside of them. Then Andy Stanley goes on this way. He says, if you're a theist by any definition, which means any of us who believe in God, who controls the actions and activities of this world, your jealousy issue is really between you and God. What God did for one, he could have done for you too. But for some reason, he didn't. Your problem isn't with the person who has what you don't have. It's with your creator. He owes you. And this, this insight gets us right to the heart of jealousy. See, when we're jealous, we think the issue is the person who has what we don't. The person who got the thing that we should have gotten. The person who has the thing that we would like. The person who seems to be living the lifestyle or living the dream that we always thought we would live. Yet what Andy Stanley points out is that if God did it for them, he could have done it for me too. So my actual issue is not with the person. My issue is with my God. My issue is with my creator. See, I think right at the heart of jealousy is two things. At the heart of jealousy is the thought that God has shorted us. He shorted us. God could have given me her skill, her talent, his position, her fame. He could have given me that office or that lifestyle. He could have given me that kind of family. He could have given me those children. He could have given me that kind of marriage, but he didn't. God has shorted me. And at the heart of our jealousy is the other claim, that God owes us. That God owes us. Like at our heart, we actually believe God has shorted us. He has given us less than he has given to other people. And because of that, God is in debt to us. He owes us. And here's what I know. I know that when it comes to jealousy, this is really at the heart of it. This is what Saul never understood. And so my invitation for all of us this morning, if we are walking through jealousy, this idea that God has shorted me, God owes me, and some of you feel that. You've gone through life in such a way where it feels like God could have given you more, but he didn't. I want to offer you a prayer this morning. And this is not a nice, lovely prayer that we would put on a coffee mug. This is not one of those easy prayers to pray. This is a gritty and raw and real and honest type of prayer that we should offer before our God. And here's the prayer I want to offer for some of you to give before God. If you feel like God has shorted you and he owes you, pray this. Lord, I'm resentful about my life and I think you owe me. I'm resentful about my life and I think you owe me. Now here's what I know. Some of you could pray that prayer in all honesty. You are resentful about your life. You do think God owes you. And I actually want to encourage you to pray that. To just raw and honest before your God, pray what's actually on your heart because he can handle it. And if that's how you really feel, if that's what's really going on in your heart, bring that before the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to do a healing work in your heart. But here's what I know for others of you. For others of you, you are jealous of someone or something, there's something that's been stirred up even throughout this sermon and you know you're jealous. But you would go, Brian, I am jealous, but I would never pray that prayer. And you go, Brian, I would never pray that prayer because God doesn't owe me anything. And here's what I would say. The moment you become uncomfortable with that prayer because you don't think God owes you anything is the moment you are on the edge of spiritual breakthrough. It is the moment you are on the edge of moving past that jealousy into something else. It is the moment you recognize that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, owes you nothing. And yet you woke up with life and breath this morning, with clothes on your back. You woke up with every good and perfect gift you had, and God has given it to you. The moment I recognize God owes me nothing, and yet has given me everything, 
is the moment I'm on the edge of spiritual breakthrough. Saul never understands that, and therefore in verse 12 we see these words. It says simply that Saul was afraid of David. Saul was afraid of David. So don't miss this. This is the king. He has all the power, all the might, all the guards, all the army surrounding him. He's got everything that he could ever want, and yet Saul is afraid of David. Do you see the progression that began here? It began with Saul, and he's king, and he's got everything, and then his life unravels. I'll show it to you this way. I'll call it the unraveling of King Saul in six verses. I'll show it to you on the screen. In verse 7, he's comparing himself. By verse 7 at the end, he's jealous. Then in verse 8, he's angry, and he becomes insecure. Then he becomes obsessive over David, and eventually he becomes violent, and now he's living in fear. This is the unraveling of King Saul in just six verses. And then the rest of Saul's life will be spent hunting down and obsessing over David, hunting for him in caves and in the countryside. The rest of his life begins to unravel until his eventual death because he's not focused on God and what God wants for his life. He's not focused on the mission and the assignment God has given him as the king over his people. His attention is all on David. And it unravels his life. Why? Because this is the cautionary tale for us that unchecked jealousy will unravel your life. It will unravel your marriage. It will unravel your relationship with your kids and grandkids. It'll unravel your job and your career. It'll unravel your contentment in this life. It will unravel everything you hold precious if you do not deal with the jealousy that goes on in your mind and heart. In the back half of verse 12, it says this. It says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So the narrator, for the first time, is going to bring in the spiritual condition of these two men in the story. And it tells us that the Lord is with David. Like, in other words, David is walking in right relationship before the Lord. But then it tells us a powerful insight, and that is that the actual spiritual condition of Saul is such that God has departed from him. God's no longer with him. He's no longer walking and living in the presence of the living God. And this is why it's so significant that we get to this point, because as I talk about jealousy... And the danger of jealousy. The great temptation for all of us is to leave this place thinking this is a good moral encouragement to just try not to be jealous. And to deal with our jealousy, to write it out, or to talk to someone, or to see a counselor, all of those are good things. There are good, healthy practices we can use to deal with our jealousy. And yet it doesn't get to the core of the issue. Because the core of the issue, according to this text, is not a material issue, it is a spiritual issue. The great problem for Saul, the reason he never understands his jealousy, is because God has departed from him. It is a spiritual issue between him and his God. And here's the insight for us, that we tend to describe jealousy as a feeling that we experience. We tend to think of jealousy as an emotion, something that wells up within me. We tend to think of jealousy as something that just kind of happens to us, and it's neutral, and it doesn't really matter, and it's just sort of one of those parts of being human that happens inside of us. We tend to describe jealousy as an emotion or as a feeling. But I want you to know that the Bible describes jealousy as a sin we commit. We describe it as an emotion or a feeling we experience. The Bible describes it as a sin we commit. Let me show you this in Galatians chapter 5. Paul is writing out one of his vice lists, one of the things that human beings do to rebel against God. And he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. 
sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So so right smack in the middle, you can see the word highlighted there is jealousy. And I find it fascinating that jealousy is like on the list right next to orgies, right? It's on the list right next to sexual immorality and idolatry. It is on the same list as witchcraft. And again, for so many of us, we think of jealousy as just this thing that happens inside of us, and it doesn't feel super good. It's kind of like heartburn, though. It'll go away, and it's fine. But, but that is not how the Bible describes jealousy. The Bible describes jealousy not as an emotion we experience or feel, but rather as a sin we commit. And I think there's a profound reason for that that I want to suggest to you this morning. And here's the reason. Because jealousy, jealousy is idolatry. Jealousy is idolatry. When we are walking in jealousy, we are walking in idolatry. And by idolatry, I mean that we are walking in such a way that we are expecting someone or something else in this world to do what only God can do for us. And you'll realize this the moment you start to think what's beneath the thing you're actually jealous of. See, we think we're jealous of someone's career or their marriage or their house or their job or their income, their influence. But what's actually underneath that is the thing we really desperately want. I'll give you a few examples. Like, we want his job because we want to feel significant. So, so you see someone who has a job in your organization, your company, that's better than yours, and it's not necessarily that you want that exact job. It's that you see the way he operates in that job, and it seems like his life is significant, and so you want that, you crave that, you desire that significance. Or imagine someone who you're jealous of. You want her talent. You want her talent because you want to feel valued. So you see a woman who's just so talented, so gifted, so obviously built up in her talent and gift, and you want that and you crave that. And it's not because you want to take that from her, it's that you want the same value placed on you that you sense is placed on her. We see someone who's popular, who has influence or a platform, and we want his influence because we want to be known. One of the core human instincts is this desire to be known for people to be curious about our life and interested in what's going on in our heart and in our mind. And so we see people who are famous or we see people who have influence or a platform and we so desire what they have, not because we necessarily even want that platform, but because we want to be known and cared about and interested in like they are. We think of the jealousy we have around how other people look or their physiques and we might say you want her body because you want to feel lovable. It's not that you literally want her body, It's not that you literally want to be a clone of the person you're jealous of. It's that you look at them and think the way they look makes them loved, and I want to feel loved like that too. I want to feel lovable as well. So we covet, we desire, we're jealous of that. Or we want his income because we want to feel security. Like in the end, money is just these papers or numbers on a screen, and they have value in as much as we can spend them, and we think that allows us to have security. And I think a false sense of security And so what happens is we want their income, not just because we want the money, but because we want to feel safe and secure like our lives and our families are going to be okay. And finally, we want her marriage because we want to feel intimacy. It's not that we actually want to be in her marriage. It's not that we see someone and we, I want to actually be married to their spouse. It's that we want our marriage to share the same kind of intimacy we think that they have. And I read through this list, the words I've highlighted, significance, value, 
being known, being loved, feeling secure, feeling intimate. And here's what I hope we all know this morning, that there's the only things, the only one who can provide those things for you eternally is God. Only God can provide those things for you. Only God can actually make those things an enduring part of your life. And so when we look to the other things, when we look to these other things, thinking if I could just get these things, I would be significant, I would be valued, I would be known and loved and secure and intimate, only God can provide those things. We need to internalize what Saul never did, that what other people have will never give you what you really need. What other people have will never get you what you really need. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And yet Saul never grasps this. He never gets it. His entire journey, he never realizes that he could have everything David has and it would never give him what he really needs. Again, the cautionary tale for Saul is simply this, that unchecked jealousy will unravel your life. It'll unravel your life. And this is true for every single one of us here in the room. It's true for those of us listening online. It's true for all of us. See, sometimes what we do is we say there's Bible characters and there's us. And they were a certain type of human, but I'm a different type of human. I'm modern, I'm sophisticated, I'm advanced. And I'm here to tell you the depressing news this morning that you are not any of those things. You are the same kind of human being that Saul was. Because there's only one kind of human being. And it's the human beings that God has made in his image who are living in a broken, fallen world under the curse of sin. And the same jealousy that unraveled Saul's life can unravel yours as well. It can unravel your family and your marriage and your career, your relationships, your friendships. It can unravel everything you hold precious in this life. That is the cautionary tale for us. And this morning, as we close, I want to try to offer you the antidote to that jealousy. I want to offer you the solution to what can unravel our lives. And in order to get there, I want to look at the words of the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 4, he simply says these words. He says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To me, this is the antidote to jealousy. It is saying alongside the Apostle Paul that my God will supply every need of yours. Your desire to feel significant and valued and known and loved and intimate and secure, all of those desires you have, no one else in this world can provide that in an enduring way. Only God can do that. Only God can provide that. And then Paul's going to argue that God can provide that according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Like in other words, God goes, my glory, relationship with me, is like a storehouse of all the things you've ever needed in this world. All the things you've ever been after, feeling loved and valued and significant and known, all of those things can be found in me and me alone. Which is why the next words out of Paul's mouth are this. He says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, what we need to understand about our jealousy is that our jealousy is not ultimately a problem with the person in front of us, and it is not ultimately just a problem with ourselves. It is a problem between us and our creator. And the way out of our jealousy is not by thinking more about jealousy, it's not by looking more inside of ourselves, it is by orienting and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That's how we get out of jealousy. I wanna close with two antidotes for jealousy for your life. The first antidote to jealousy is gratitude. It's gratitude. It is being grateful for what God has given you. Saying God owes me nothing and yet he has given me everything. It is the recognition that whatever life you are leaving right now or leading right now, there is someone somewhere in the world who is profoundly jealous of the lifestyle you get to live. 
Whatever you are doing right now, wherever you are at, there's someone who wants what you actually have. There is a gratitude we have before God for everything he has given us. But there is also, and this is so important for us, there is gratitude for what God has given us, but there is also a gratitude we should have for what God has withheld from us. There is a gratitude for what God has given us, and there's a gratitude for what God has withheld from us. Because as people who believe in a wise and sovereign and loving and good Father in heaven, there are certain things God has withheld from our life, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he knows that giving us that thing would not lead to our good, and not lead to his glory. So I was thinking about it this way this week. When I was in college, uh, I knew God was calling me into ministry. And as I was graduating college, I started applying for youth pastor, youth minister jobs all over the state of California. And I've shared this here before, uh, that I was applying to all sorts of churches, dozens of churches, and I heard back from a grand total of zero of them. Just like crickets. And I'm just going, God, what's the deal here? You called me into ministry. I think this is the route. You apply for the job, and then you at least interview. You could at least tell me no, but I didn't hear a thing. And so I'm kind of stuck in this spot. And then this opportunity in the spring of 2010 as I'm graduating college comes along. And it's with a church that I know back in the area I grew up in. Uh, and I was so excited because I knew a few people there and I talked to a few people there. And I thought for sure this is going to work out. At least they're going to interview me. At least there's going to be an opportunity here. At least this might be the door that God has been waiting for me. And so I applied to this church and I'm so excited and starting to envision a future there. And they tell me no. They tell me no. And in that moment, I wasn't like, God, thank you so much for closing a door on me. But here's what I can realize now, 13 years out, that God closed that door and then later that summer brought me on staff here at Calvary. I met my wife and been able to build the entire life that God has allowed me by his grace to build here. And so I look back on that moment and I'm filled with gratitude, yes, for what God gave me, but also for the door he closed for me. Because the door he closed allowed me to go into the life that he wanted for me. So that's gratitude. Gratitude is, God, thank you for what you've given me. And God, even if I don't understand it, thank you for the doors that have closed. Thank you for the things you haven't given me. Like, I think about it this way. For so many parents, you grow up, and as you're growing up, and as your kids are growing up, you just desire, you go, okay, God, why can't I have more money, or more wealth, or better vacations, or better stuff at my house? And I wonder if in God's sovereignty, he would say, actually, I don't want you to have that because I know it's going to ruin your children. I know more wealth might feel good in this moment, but I know the harm it's going to have on the next generation. I don't want that for you. Which parent here would make that trade? None of us would. None of us would trade more money for children's lives being ruined. And so all of us have to go somehow in God's sovereignty. He is holding back the right things for our good and for his glory. That's gratitude. Gratitude is the first antidote to jealousy. And the second antidote to jealousy is worship. It's worship. It's setting our eyes on the worth and the beauty and the brilliance and the glory of our God. Again, the great issue for Saul is that he never looks inside of himself. He never looks up to his God. He thinks the problem is David. And for some of you in this room, there is something or someone you are jealous of. And you think they're the problem. And you think if you can obsess more over them, you'll finally be happy. And the cautionary tale of Saul is this. That you will never be happy. You will never be satisfied. You will never get what you actually need as long as your focus is on the one who has what you don't. You will only be finally satisfied when you set your eyes, not on the person who has what you don't, not even interior to yourself, but when you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, when you set your eyes on God in worship. That is what King Saul never recognized and is what I hope all of us can recognize this morning. See this, this is the cautionary tale of King Saul. 
that unchecked jealousy will unravel your life. I hope we can hear this story. I hope we can know this story. And I hope above all that we can set our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thank you once again for your word. Thanks that we get to open your word with your people and we get to gather here as a church this morning. Father, I pray for anyone right now who is experiencing just the sting of jealousy and this sermon has ripped up all sorts of things inside of their heart and inside of their mind. And God, I ask that you would bring a healing touch to their hearts this morning, that your Holy Spirit would do what only your Holy Spirit can do. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who's hard-hearted right now, who's denying that jealousy could ever be an issue in their life, and I pray your Holy Spirit would do what only your Holy Spirit can do in convicting for all of us, God. I pray that our attention would be turned toward you, that whatever jealousy or envy, whatever desire is going on in our life, that that desire would ultimately be turned toward you, and that you would give us, through the power and the riches of Christ Jesus, everything we need. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.